0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: And you know who will not benefit when we're fighting on the streets: women in vulnerable communities. And so we just have to have confidence in an institution that has failed us and failed us and failed us. And occasionally, like Obergefell and Roe v. Wade and um, Loving versus Virginia, occasionally showed up for us. And we have to bend that institution to be more just. But at the same time, I think giving up on it and saying, like, nothing matters means chaos. And I can't be here for chaos because I absolutely know that in systems of chaos, the people who lose are the people who need the protection most.
2: Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley.
3: My name is Evelyn DeRoss. I'm a fourth year majoring in government, and I'm an intern at the Center for Politics.
0: My name is Victoria Molman. I am a second year government major, and I'm also an intern at the Center for Politics.
2: We are delighted to have on the podcast with us Dahlia Lithwick, the senior legal correspondent at Slate Magazine and host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning biweekly podcast about the law. She joins us to discuss her award-winning book, Lady Justice. Enjoy our conversation. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your best-selling book, Lady Justice. I want to start with what may seemingly be a simple-minded question, um, but what does justice mean to you? Oh, that is not a simple-minded question. That's like all the things. I like when people
1: start with like the softballs and work up to the big existential questions, but thank you. Um, I mean, I think justice more and more to me um, is a distinct entity from law Um, because you can, you know, have all the law in the world and think that that's the justice system. And I think we are increasingly seeing that in a whole bunch of contexts, um, and not have it be justice. So I, you know, my views about justice are probably closely aligned with, you know, some of my heroes, uh, you know, Martin Luther King and Pauli Murray and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and increasingly evident uh, Ketanji um, Brown Jackson. Um, I think that justice has more to do with fundamental rules around human dignity and equality. Uh, decency, access to services. Uh, It's not just rule of law. It's a part of rule of law. But I think most foundationally, at least for me, justice is about the notion that uh, everybody is a creature of dignity and humanity and that our legal systems need to serve that more so than that they need to serve or reinforce existing power structures. So I know that's an inchoate answer, but I think it's, um, you know, I always say I can't believe we're going to Hitler on the first question, but I always have to remind people that, you know, what happened in Nazi Germany all happened under color of law. None of that was not lawful. And so I think we make a mistake of saying as long as something is legal, it is just that is absolutely not true. And we're seeing that around the world, uh, whether it's in Hungary or uh, Poland, uh, around the world, we're seeing legal advances that do not advance uh, the cause of justice.
3: Thank you again for coming to talk to us. Um, A chapter that hit really close to home for us at the center was your chapter about the events of August 11th and 12th in 2017 in Charlottesville. Um, In that chapter, you say, Anyone who really saw what happened in Charlottesville in 2017 was unsurprised by the riot at the U.S. Capitol in January 2021. Although it took a couple of years, your chapter tells the story of how justice was eventually served in Charlottesville with a unanimous guilty verdict and $26 million in damages. Can you speak to the role that women played achieving accountability through the legal system and what lessons does Charlottesville offer for accountability for the January 6th insurrection?
1: I think for me, Charlottesville is in many ways the beating heart of the book because it is an avatar for so many of the stories I was trying to tell, which were in some sense what happens, I guess it goes to your very first question, when law fails to show up, when justice fails to show up, right? And so we had an event that took place. Uh, it shattered the community in many ways. It still, um, you know, has left a big thumbprint on the community and, you know, the president said there were very fine people on both sides and his attorney general failed to take it seriously as a hate crime, failed to take it seriously as a crime at all. And into the vacuum steps, you know, a pair of lawyers from big fancy firms, who don't know anything much about the KKK Act or about doing, you know, social justice litigation around hate crimes. Uh, They just looked around, waited for a grown-up to show up, and when the grown-ups failed to show up, they just stepped in. And for me, it's no accident that that was two women, Robbie Kaplan and Karen Dunn, because in many ways, and I think this is a central thesis of the book, time and time again, it was women who just step into the breach – when the legal system either buckles or fails to operate. And so I was really, for so many reasons, moved by the story of, you know, Robbie, who had, you know, certainly ample reason, and she she fought on behalf of Edie Windsor at the U.S. Supreme Court, which paved the way, right, for not just the demise of the Defense of Marriage Act, but ultimately for Obergefell and marriage equality nationwide really didn't need to jump into this, (laughs) like was doing just fine at her big shoe, white shoe firm in New York, not big shoe, big white shoe firm in New York, and suddenly just looks around and says, I guess if nobody is going to bring these people uh, to justice, then I'm going to have to teach myself how to do it. And she called me, uh, said, if you can rustle up some office space, uh, I think maybe we could find some plaintiffs. And the other reason I kind of love the story isn't just as you said that it took years. I mean, it took years. And the, you know, case kept getting delayed, and then COVID happened, and you know, the the Nazis and white supremacist uh, defendants and the Proud Boys, you know, kept dropping their phones into toilets and not showing up for depositions. In some sense, they were, again, this goes to your first question, really. Refusing to abide by the rules of the road about what law means, not just justice, but law. And nevertheless, to get them hailed into court, have a jury in Charlottesville, you know, fined for the plaintiffs, have some sense of accountability, even if, and it is increasingly looking like, we may never get the judgments paid because it's hard to collect judgments. But to have this case stand for the proposition that in the United States of America, you don't get to sail into some other town, march around the streets with flaming torches, terrorize vulnerable communities, both the Jewish community, the African-American community, all of the immigrant communities uh, and the LGBTQ community and the student community. And terrorize them, and then walk away without any accountability. That just can't be allowed to happen in a nation that believes not just in justice, but the rule of law. And so, I think it's it's again a story of how, and we see it time and time again in the book. Just waiting around for someone else to show up is not a really good system of protecting the vulnerable or um, fighting injustice. And for me. I was just really struck and I will say every chapter in the book in some sense is a case that I covered as a journalist and I was just very very shocked right from the women's march right from what I call the airport revolution with Becca Heller at the willingness of women and often really young women who this was not their lane to just say like okay I guess I gotta teach myself about this thing and to just step in and file a brief and it's Maybe this is the last thing I'll say because I've gone pretty far afield from the question. But I will say I I think that what we are seeing in Iran on the streets now, right, where women don't have access to the machinery of power at all. They don't have access to the justice system. They have a bunch of clerics who are telling them, you know, what to wear and what to say and where to study. We take for granted that we have access to the courts and we have women judges and women justices and women in Congress and women on school boards. Like That is a non-trivial source of huge change-making power, and it's not the same as putting your body on the streets. It's really important, and I think women feel that in their bones.
0: Um, In the book... You talk about Stacey Abrams' efforts to increase voter turnout in Georgia, especially among minority groups. During her run for governorship in 2018, Abrams made the effort to reach disengaged voters while also investigating the barriers to voting facing minorities in the state. At the time, she was being directly challenged by her opponent, Brian Kemp, who, during her concession speech, she called out for supporting voter suppression measures, including the exact match system. Although she didn't win the election, You mentioned that she encouraged people to see the normalness of political engagement, thus inspiring disengaged communities to vote. As we approach another divisive presidential election, what are the challenges and opportunities for ensuring full participation when there are ongoing efforts to restrict who can participate and divergent access depending on the party that controls the state government? And who do you see as leading efforts to secure political rights and representation?
1: It's another great question, and I think the answer to it is a little bit the explanation for why the last three chapters of a book that pretends to be about women lawyers turns into voting and voting rights and organizing, because one of the things that was really amply clear to me and remains amply clear to me is you can win all the court battles in the world and lose democracy, right? Like if you win and you win and you win. And, you know, one of the chapters in the book is about Bridget Amiri at the ACLU, who, along with a team of amazing attorneys, helped to get a a young undocumented woman who was not being allowed out of a migrant shelter in Texas, even though she'd been given a waiver to terminate her pregnancy. And the administration simply locked her in the shelter and wouldn't let her have an abortion. And, you know, it's sort of a triumphal ending because at the end of the day, the ACLU is able to get her uh, the right to terminate her pregnancy and to secure uh, uh, an abortion for her. But then a couple of years later, nobody in Texas is going to get an abortion. And in fact, you know, women are going to go to jail. Uh, you know, just last week we saw um, three people being sued in civil court uh, because of text messages they were sending helping somebody procure medication to terminate a pregnancy. So this is, you know, where we're headed now. And so I think it's really important. And for me, that's really emblematic of, you know, Bridget and Mary can win her case, and we can still lose reproductive freedom for half the population. And that's a democracy problem. That's not a court's problem. And so your question is exactly right, which is, if we do the thing where we sit back and say we're just going to let these you know, lawyers solve everything for us in courts, we're going to lose. And if we also say we're just going to like vote every two years, we're going to lose. And what Stacey Abrams is an avatar of for me is the proposition that if we don't organize around that foundational idea – that protecting democracy is like breakfast, lunch, and dinner 365 days a year, and that communities, as you asked in your question, that have never been served by voting, right, need to be enrolled in that project, even though it seems like it's against interest, right? And so what I think Stacey Abrams was doing in Georgia and continues to do in Georgia, which is say to vulnerable communities, you have no reason whatsoever to believe that the government, the governor, you know, the the state Supreme Court is going to show up for you. They have never showed up for you. And yet I'm asking you to fundamentally believe that we could change that. And she has had, I mean, right, That this is why we have a Senator Warnock, (laughs) is that she has single-handedly, I think, with this amazing coalition, again, many of those groups are led by women, um, pulled together – 365-day-a-year breakfast, lunch, and dinner organization that convinces communities that change does not happen by sitting back and hoping some magical person is going to come along and fix it. Change happens when every single person realizes they have skin in the game. And so for me, you know, I point to to um, her chapter, and I point to the work that Vanita Gupta was doing in her chapter at the leadership uh, conference, because there are so many groups around the country that are trying to organize people who have never been given any evidence that voting will work for them. And that's hard. And it's particularly hard in a moment in which, and this is the sort of fundamental nihilism of the moment, When you have people in government who are telling you government sucks, it's all a swamp, everyone's a liar, elections don't matter, elections are stolen, your vote doesn't matter, right? Like all of these are messages that are coming from the highest quarters that there's no point in voting because it's all a sham. And even if you do vote, everybody is corrupt and, you know, what government exists to do is take away justice and services. And so I think that the real challenge is not just in the face, as you said in your question, of voter suppression and gerrymandering and, you know, voter ID laws and a case at the Supreme Court this year that is going to like take state Supreme Courts out of the role of overseeing elections. Like this stuff is existential, but it's so abstract, right? We don't always connect the dots between these abstractions and things we understand like climate change and reproductive freedom and, you know, what does it mean uh, uh, when you start banning books? And so I think that what Stacey Abrams does and what a lot of these groups are doing that I have so much respect for is providing the connective tissue between those two ideas between the idea that justice, and again, it goes back to the first question, justice is not just about what happens in courts. Justice is, if you're in Connecticut and it takes you 30 seconds to vote because you're in a really wealthy neighborhood, and Carol Anderson, who in the book says, you know, in Georgia, you bring your sneakers and your battery pack and you stand in line for seven hours if needs be in Georgia because they closed all the precincts, right, for for communities of color. So she essentially says the thing that, that I think Stacey Abrams says, which is, you know, now All of us are going to have to vote the way black people have voted as long as they've had a right to vote in this country, which is under duress, but with the knowledge that their vote matters. And that's, I think, what Stacey Abrams is doing is she's saying, like, take your battery pack, put on your comfy sneakers, bring a granola bar. You might be in a long line. And by the way, (laughs) now they're going to criminalize bringing you water. And you do it anyway because the alternative is nothing, right, is losing everything.
0: Um, I guess this next question is a more general question for you. Um, So throughout the book, you shared the stories of several women who succeeded in the legal and political fields despite having to constantly fight against structural barriers, lack of recognition, and even hostility and harassment from their male counterparts, including Vanita Gupta, Polly Murray, and Anita Hill. What is your message to young women around the country who might be feeling discouraged from pursuing careers in male-dominated fields due to those issues?
1: My message is that I know particularly I've been going around with the book this year and y'all young women at law school are frustrated like they are frustrated and they are scared and like a lot of first and second year law students have just said to me like why not just go to dentistry school like this is nuts you know I can't effect change. And um, we seem to be living in a moment of backsliding, right? Of real shocking, shocking kind of revanchist retreat from values I thought we all shared. And I think the answer is like, if you go to dentistry school, first of all, like respect to anybody who's a dentist. I'm not meaning to use that as an example of giving up, but I am saying we need to keep working in these male dominated fields, because as I said, I think to your earlier question, this is the key to power, right? This is the key to power is staying in these spaces. And it is really hard. And I, I have to tell you, and I know you all three of you know this, you know, if you watched the Katanji Brown Jackson confirmation hearings, it's shocking, right? That in this stage of life, that level of racism and sexism can be spoken out loud, you know, on the floor of the United States Senate. And the number of young women who are just like, I, 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 I don't <laughs> what kind of person would subject herself to this, right? And that's, I think, that at the heart of your question, the answer is like a really strong, brave person who grew up not believing that it was still going to be like this in 2022 and who now sees that it is. But I think for me, she was such a model for how we do it that I just want to sort of say to people, like, watch what she held at those hearings, right? Sitting there between her parents and her spouse and her kids being called a child molester over and over and over again when there was no evidence of anything like that in her record. And part of me wants to say it is painful that she doesn't get to cry. It is painful that she does not get to, you know, slam her fist on the table the way Brett Kavanaugh did at his hearing, right, and shout and make threats. It's really hard to hold all that diminution and shaming and anger and disregard, by the way, for the record of somebody who was as qualified, if not more so, to be on that court than anybody currently sitting there. But she held it, right? She held all of that. And then she's respectful and she is polite and she is calm. And that is really, really hard. And particularly for women in power, let me tell you, like I spent all year last year trying not to set my hair on fire on national television because you just hold it. Knowing it's not fair, knowing that that's a double standard, but knowing that this is power and it's real power. And I guess it goes back to what I said about if the alternative is being on the streets in Iran because we don't have the levers of power in our hands, we can't give that up. We have to just hang on to it and fight for it and understand in some sense that efforts to diminish powerful women come from a place of deep fear, Right. Fear that we are moving into power in this country. We're not there yet, but moving. And I think, you know, you ask about Anita Hill, and I think one of the things interviewing Anita Hill taught me in this book is, you know, all of the lawyers I interviewed have a really different relationship with the law. And some of them, like Becca Heller, who founded the Re- Refugee Project um, IRAP that um, showed up at the airports during the travel ban, are just like, pss- the law is stupid, you know, like I'm just using the master's tools to take down the master's house. some um, like Sally Yates and Anita Hill have like really lofty ideas about the law and the rule of law and justice. And I think that what Anita Hill said to me about it, in some sense of living on that seam of the rule of law, the legal system in this country has been used almost entirely entirely for centuries to oppress women, right? Why would I put my faith in it? Which is kind of what you're asking. And my answer is Anita Hill's answer, which is the alternative to law, she says, is chaos, right? It's fighting on the streets. And you know who will not benefit when we're fighting on the streets? Women in vulnerable communities. And so we just have to have confidence in an institution that has failed us and failed us and failed us. And occasionally, like Obergefell and Roe v. Wade and um, Loving versus Virginia, occasionally showed up for us. And we have to bend that institution to be more just. But at the same time, I think giving up on it and saying, like, nothing matters means chaos. And I can't be here for chaos because I absolutely know that in systems of chaos, the people who lose are the people who need the protection most.
3: In a recent article for Slate, you call the Dobbs v. Jackson opinion quote one of the most deeply theological inflected decisions in history. Um, similarly, in your book, you say that Bridget um, Amiri, sorry, um, Amiri described the decision by the D.C. Circuit Court on the fate of a teenage immigrant's ability to have an abortion as quote a government that respects the autonomy of women only if they make. One, theological decision favored by the government. Can you talk about the role of um, theology and the theological orientation plays in judicial decision making and the impact that it has on justice? And what are the intersections between um, theological and gender identity and how that impacts justice?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, again, you are ringers and you're asking the right questions. For me, this is one of the things that is both everywhere and nowhere right now in Supreme Court reporting. I think that there's a couple of folks who've been writing really boldly, and I'm thinking of Linda Greenhouse um, at The New York Times, about you know, Riva Siegel at Yale University writing really openly, like clearly, these are religiously inflected decisions, and to fail to call them that is kind of malpractice. And we do, I think, largely fail to call them that. Um, in the piece, I think that you're quoting from. Uh, we now have uh, uh, a case in Indiana. Is that right? It's in Indiana, right? Yes, um, where uh, we have the the state making claims about when life begins, which are completely bound up in claims that come from certain churches and not others. We have a bunch of religious objectors of different faiths who file a suit saying, actually, my religious conscience demands that I have a different standard for when life begins and how to calibrate, you know, the interests of the life of the mother against the life of the fetus. And we have a a brief in that case that says, oh, those people's (laughs) religious conscience doesn't count. They're faking it. And that's really, really frightening because it's a, a, a moment, you know, a in which, like, the whole point of the First Amendment religion clauses was that we don't get to say some religions are lesser and some are greater. We certainly don't hand over to the courts the right to decide who's faking their religious claims and who isn't. Like, this is this is exactly why people left to come to the United States because they lived in countries that did exactly this, right? Questioned uh, other religions as as, as second tier. And so I think that our failure to talk really openly and starkly about religion in the courts is a failure to sort of name the thing that is clearly, abundantly, provably true. And then we say, oh, you know, we're going to talk about Dobbs as, you know, a, a, a Opinion that is about stare decisis, you know, the role of precedent. We're going to talk about Dobbs as a question of states' rights. But if you go back and you read Justice Alito's majority opinion in Dobbs, there are so many dog whistles and so many sort of notes and so many citations, including, by the way, to Sir Matthew Hale, you know, the famous like 17th century witch burner, who he cites with approval. Um, And so I think to not take note, as you say, of how much religion is everywhere and nowhere in that opinion, and to not write about it aggressively and to not say – If you are going to make claims that this is in fact a quote unquote Christian country and a white Christian country, then we have to interrogate that because it's certainly not what the framers were thinking and it is certainly not what most of us believe. I mean, huge numbers of Americans. So I think what I'm asking for in those pieces and what I'm increasingly doing in my work is saying, if you are going to, as a state legislature, make claims about life beginning at conception and cite the Bible, then that has to be talked about openly and challenged openly under First Amendment principles of religious liberty. And and I just worry that we are sliding, and I think this is your question, more and more into a very, very theocratic mode of doing law and justice in this country, but much more perniciously, and I think this is also your question, we're not naming it. We're not talking about it openly. We're using all sorts of codes and buzzwords. And I think the last thing I will say is it is always a problem to question Supreme Court justices on these matters of is your faith going to somehow shape your jurisprudence? And and one of the most depressing, if you want to go back and read, depressing confirmation hearings. You know, Justice Brandeis was accused of having dual loyalties at his confirmation hearing, right? Because he was Jewish. Justice Frankfurter was. You know, this is this goes back. Justice Brennan. You know, so it is. I am in no way saying that it is an easy thing to thread. And when Amy Coney Barrett, you may recall, was at her confirmation hearing, not for the Supreme Court, but for the Seventh Circuit, Senator Dianne Feinstein from California tried to kind of question her on this, you know, is your religious, you know, worldview going to shape your doctrinal worldview? And she got clobbered from both sides, both from the right and the left, for asking uh, inappropriate questions. So I think we have to be both solicitous. This is very, very thorny territory. And at the same time, you know, just last week, we have a judge, a single district court judge in Amarillo, Texas, who has been working for religious groups for most of his career, who is about to, with the stroke of a pen, do away with medication, abortion, drugs nationwide. And to not deeply interrogate the relationship between his theological worldview and his judicial doctrine, again, it's malpractice, and yet didn't show up in a lot of the reporting I read. You look so sad. Your faces are all so sad
2: right now. (laughs) Am I not cheering you up? This is serious. This is really serious stuff. And, you know, we're, we're primarily focusing on the role of the Supreme Court, but So much is happening now in the state legislatures and the state Supreme Courts. And um, I'm not sure if you've been paying attention at all to this new theory of the private right to action, um, which kind of goes back to the way in which there's the distortion of the infrastructure of democracy through legal means. Um, But, you know, I think it's deeply concerning and, and, you know, you're, Book is an inspiration, and our discussion here is an inspiration in which you're calling for women, but others also to continue to step up. Um, at the same time, um, you you recently had a discussion with uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Jill Karofsky, um, and she spoke about the backlash she received for certifying election results. So I guess on this point of um, you know trying to I, I guess trying to find a point of optimism and and looking forward. Um, You know, what are, how do we address these challenges of showing up in a time when just doing the right thing is under attack? So, so
1: I'm going to go somewhere a little dark uh, because we haven't been depressed enough and you don't all look sufficiently sad, but I'm going to, I want to land on a really happy, hopeful note uh, because I really feel this and I want to really lift up the fact that nobody was more surprised that I ended up producing an optimistic book than me. Because, uh, you know, I'm not feeling super great about the state of uh, the world. And nevertheless, I produced a book that I think was pretty hopey. So the the dark thing I want to say is, first of all, you know, Justice Karofsky, I, I don't get a lot of state Supreme Court justices to come on my podcast, like she was very much the first. And It's very rare to get somebody to come and and, and speak about this. And the reason I think she wanted to speak, in part, you know, she said she read the book and she felt that silence is not an option. And she wanted to talk about what it was like to sit in her chambers while this, you know, Trump-Biden race was being adjudicated in the Supreme Court and to have people on the plaza across from her with guns, right, to have added security, to have death threats, persistent, violent, anti-Semitic. Misogynistic threats directed at her, and how are you supposed to do justice in the world when uh, you you don't know that you can get to your car to go home, right? And that's your question. And she came and spoke about it on the show, and 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 also talked about you know disciplinary actions that were taken against her by the mechanisms that were supposed to be protecting her for doing nothing more than asking hypotheticals at oral arguments in that case, which is what, as I understand it, judges do. So she wanted to come and speak out about it. But I think under your question and under my interview with her, the thing that is scary, and I think we don't say this and name it enough, is that we are in a really frightening vigilante era in this country. And so whether you want to talk about, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse and what it means to be given a lawful blessing to cross state lines and start shooting people. Or you want to talk about SB8, which is that Texas, quote unquote, vigilante bill that conscripts private citizens into state actors for purposes of stopping abortion. And this is before abortion was illegal, right? What we are seeing, and it's really frightening, is more and more and more, and this is your question, I think, of the justice system. It's why you asked me the first question about justice, blessing vigilantism in different contexts, right? And I think that once you bless a notion in which – and by the way, this is you know putting cameras into classrooms to monitor teachers, right, so that parents can, can make sure that they're – all of that is vigilantism. And if it sounds familiar, this is the Fugitive Slave Act, right? We know how this ends. It's not good. It is a way of telling citizens, you are the arbiter of what is lawful and what is not lawful. And that is the opposite of the rule of law. It is the opposite of justice. And it is really scary when those people happen to be the people who have guns in their hands, right? That's when it becomes chilling in the extreme. And that's where we're headed in a whole bunch of different contexts is under the auspices of freedom, We're saying to people, you make your own judgments about whether something is legal or illegal, and by the way, take a gun. And that was Charlottesville, by the way. So what I want to say that is hopeful is that it is entirely possible to hear what I just said and just like grab a bottle of bourbon and crawl under your desk. But the 2022 midterms, to me, are the living proof that Americans hate that. It's not just that the 2022 midterms I read, and nobody knows this better than Larry Sabato and the folks, you know, doing work at UVA. I read the 2022 election as a complete renunciation of lawlessness. It was a renunciation of January 6th. It was a renunciation of the idea that you can invent your own ending to an election and deny truth and reality. And in every one of the six states that puts abortion on the ballot in the form of direct democracy through ballot initiative or referendum, abortion wins, including Kansas, right, including Kentucky. So I think that one of the ways – and I know this was your question and it's what gives me hope – is that one of the things that needed to happen for November of 2022 – was a realization that we were asleep when Dobbs came down. We were asleep when Bruin, the gun case, came down. We were asleep when the EPA case came down, right? And the Supreme Court invents this major questions doctrine that is not a doctrine. You just put capital letters on it, as Justice Breyer said this week. You don't get to just put capital letters on something and make it a constitutional doctrine. But they did. And That's going to be the loan forgiveness program, too, under the major questions doctrine. So that's scary, but that's power. And it really goes back to the questions you were asking earlier about democracy. It's actually not the province of the U.S. Supreme Court single-handedly to decide how democracy works or to warp democracy, right, through blessing gerrymandering, blessing the independent state legislature theory and other doctrine that does not exist, blessing uh, vote suppression, doing away with Roe v. Wade, doing away with gun protections. And that's a democracy problem. (laughs) It's a democracy problem. It's not a law problem. And so I think for people to wake up on the day after Dobbs and say, you know what, I guess I better get this on my state ballot initiative. And all those amazing women in Michigan, hundreds and thousands of them who got signatures on the ballot and got Roe protected and codified uh, under state law, The amazing what we're seeing in the um, race for the Wisconsin Supreme Court primary, right? Women showing up, running on abortion and running on democracy. So I think it is very possible to say, you know, we live under the thumb of a 6-3 supermajority at uh, the Supreme Court that is hell-bent on arming everybody and hell-bent on suppressing democracy. So I guess bottle of bourbon and Netflix for me. Or we can do what people did in the midterms, which is show up, right? Is to be awake. And to show up and to organize, and it goes also to your Stacey Abrams question, do this every single day. And no, and folks, this is where it's not depressing. The Electoral Count Act, which is the thing that would have given Mike Pence ostensibly the power to set aside election results, has been fixed. People are working on state gerrymandering. People are working very hard on voter suppression. People, All of these systems, democracy problems have fixes, and really good people are working day in and day out. And the public will, I think, is with that. I don't think the public will is that everybody goes around and shoots stuff until we're all dead. So I think it's really hopeful. And here's, like, why I just put it back to where we started. I think women know this in their bones. I think women know in their bones. And it's why I think Justice Karofsky was willing to come on the show, that if this stuff gets decided on the streets by people with weapons, we will all lose and nobody knows that better than women. And so women keep showing up.
2: Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us on Politics Is Everything to talk about the women who are working tirelessly through the legal system in pursuit of justice in a more democratic society. We appreciate your reporting and also for challenging us to think about the ways in which we can ourselves contribute to improving our democracy in our society.
1: Thank you for having me and I just want to say that nothing gives me more joy than talking to students because as I tell my 19 and 17-year-old sons like who are very much of the they don't like it when I say you guys are going to fix it they're very much of the sort of you broke it you bought it you know pottery barn theory of democracy (laughs) and they don't like being told that it's on them to fix it but I am so moved and inspired. By the students that I have met traveling around with this book, because you are already better, smarter, more generous, more capacious thinkers about democracy and justice than I will ever be. And I really mean that. It's a treat to be with you. It was a
3: treat talking to, to you, too. <laughs> Thank you so much.
2: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faves. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also connect and engage with us on Twitter at center number four politics. Feel free to also send your questions, ideas, and suggestions to us by email at Virginia.edu. Until next time,